you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. Hey, welcome back to Data Science at Home and Beyond. I'm Francesco, your host for the next 30 minutes. Feel free to join us on our Discord channel where you can get in touch with me and the amazing community of scientists and practitioners. You will find links you need on the official website, datascienceathome.com. Today, as always, we are going to have a lot of fun with the topics you love the most. So put yourself at ease, grab your cup of coffee or tea, and expose your brain to the topic of the day. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast, the show that brings you the latest insights on data science and these applications in various industries. Today, we have a special guest, Chris Skinner, a renowned financial expert with extensive knowledge in digital banks and also the author of several books, among which I remember top of my head, Digital Bank, Digital Human and Doing Digital. Hi, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm good, Francesco, and thanks for inviting me. You forgot to mention my five children's books about Captain Cake and the Candy Crew, but that's another story. <laughs> All right, well, we know now. Of course, uh, we'll report some of the titles, very interesting books, I must say. I didn't read them, all of them, but uh, some of them definitely very interesting, especially for a, a person who's not as technical as myself. Um and of course, uh, we'll report some of these titles in the show notes of this episode on the official website, datascienceathome.com. So in this episode, we are going to speak about, uh, I would say, a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, that is cryptocurrency uh, or, or, well, digital money, digital currencies, uh, and of course, uh, the metaverse. Um, how does blockchain, how blockchain is related to the world of finance, uh, you know, except for crypto, of course. And um, uh, and finally, last but not least, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, what are the impacts? How is artificial intelligence related to the financial world? So, Chris, I think we uh, we can start. It's a lot to, <laughs> a lot to talk about, but uh, I hope we will make a decent job to unroll these uh, relatively complex uh, uh, topics today. In in order to to dive into the the uh, the topics of the day. Uh, let's speak about the future of money in relation to cryptocurrency. How do you define, in fact, the future of money in relation to crypto, uh, cryptocurrencies and governed currencies? Well, the key thing right now is there's a major um, disconnect. It's almost dystopian in where money is going. And the dystopian disconnect is between centralized versus decentralized in that the fact um, at the bottom line of this is you can you cannot have money without government and a lot of people who believe in cryptocurrencies say that therefore i'm a statist or a status someone who's working for government uh, i'm not i'm just saying who is the government of money and in that dystopian disconnect of the future the government of money could be the network of citizens which are you know we're in a situation today where everybody on planet earth is pretty much connected through the network. So is the network of citizens going to be the new government of money or will it remain with central banks and central centralized governments, which is what central bank digital currencies is trying to achieve? And in fact, the only reason why central bank 
digital currencies, which is abbreviated to be CBDCs, has taken off. Um, it's because governments are extremely worried that the network of the libertarian citizens is going to displace the centralized network of currencies. And that's where there's a huge friction. And some people say it's not the right vision, but my vision is you end up with hi-fi, which is short for hybrid finance, where it's decentralized for transactional um, you know, momentary things where you're just peer-to-peer connecting, but centralized when you want to actually store your money in a safe, secure place for the longer term. Right. So it's more like a matter of controlling uh, currency in a way. That's probably what the governments are afraid of. That is the big question. Who is the controller and how are they controlling? And too often you see a lot of um, the decentralized currencies being lost without any oh, yeah. um, pay, you know, ability to get, get it back because um, basically once it's gone, it's gone and there's no law. So it's a wild west. And if there's no law and it's wild west, that's not particularly good for money. Yeah, absolutely. And also technically, it's, uh, it is indeed impossible to let's say, reverse the blockchain when it comes to cryptocurrency based on blockchains, of course. Once that money is lost, indeed it's lost forever, um, unless one wants to break the blockchain, which is exactly what we cannot do from a technical perspective. It's still on the blockchain. It still can be found. It still can be tracked and traced between the IP addresses of the network where it was transacted. The problem is obviously identifying who is that IP address and how do you find them. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Chris, I have a, um, kind of a, a curiosity, a personal curiosity, due to the fact that cryptocurrency we have seen a, in a massive enthusiasm in the last uh, in the last few years. Uh, but in the last year, year and a half, probably, uh, there's been a massive drop of, you know, starting from Bitcoin. And of course, it has carried uh, all the other uh, alternative coins and minor coins, let's say, uh, but even Ethereum. They kind of follow the, the, the big brother there. Um, now, the question that I'm asking you is, uh, you know, what is the potential impact of cryptocurrencies on uh, traditional government currencies? Because the way I see it is kind of, uh, you know, cryptocurrency was kind of the first experiment um, that we conducted in the years. Um, and uh, due to this last drop, in fact, it's, uh, you know, we cannot call it a success, can we? Um, well, for a casual observer like yourself, maybe you've got that um, in your head, but you're, you're wrong. Um, it's cyclical. It goes through cycles in the cryptocurrency markets. And I've been watching these markets since 2011 um, and Satoshi Nakamoto's paper that launched Bitcoin was the end of 2008 so I was a little bit late to the game but I've been involved for over 12 years and what you see is depending on the technical developments of cryptocurrencies and the awareness of what they can do um, a boom bust marketplace and it's that uh, velocity and uncertainty that causes a lot of people to be um, either very optimistic or pessimistic about the cryptocurrencies. Right now, we're seeing um, that there's a lot of things happening in the technical space around the underlying Bitcoin uh, mining structures that probably will mean that there'll be a velocity in the marketplace that sees a boom coming soon. 
um, and we've just been through a, a downward cycle. Um, it's hard to predict those cycles. Um, there's a lot of people who trade in cryptocurrencies who make a lot of money out of buying and selling during those cycles, whereas I'm someone who believes much more in hodling. And if you haven't heard of hodling, it's basically a uh, typing error made during a drunken conversation on Reddit where someone wrote hod hodl instead of hold, as in hold your cryptocurrencies and bite your lip. Um, and that became a meme and a phrase that's been used ever since. Um, so you, also you mentioned the relationship between the underlying Bitcoin price and all the other currencies. And yes, there is quite a trackable relationship, although XRP, which is the Ripple currency and um, ETH uh, or ETH, which is the Ethereum currency, are in a different structure. So they're not actually related. They're completely different structures. Um, and a lot of currencies are built upon uh, the Bitcoin blockchain um, and Ethereum smart contracts. Um, so you've got other very popular uh, currencies rising like uh, Polygon and Cardano and more. Um, they all have merits, pros and cons. They're all different. There's actually almost 2,000 out there, um, maybe more today, um, but only over 1,000 probably are actively traded if you can find them. Um, bottom line for me is that I, I don't really believe in um, Bitcoin or uh, a lot of its related brethren because that is backed by the network of citizens, which going back to what we just said, um, do you believe that the right government is the network of citizens, uh, as in the majority in a democracy who say this transaction was valid and can be traced? It's valid. It's a valid structure, but... I'm much more behind Ethereum on a personal level because I've always dealt in my whole life in banking, business, and government. And that's the, the currency and blockchain of choice in banking, business, and government. And what's interesting now is you have this active war taking the friction to another level between proof of work and proof of stake. So Bitcoin is based on proof of work, which means you have to show that you mined the coins. And to mine the coins, you have to put in an awful lot of computing power, which means you actually end up using an awful lot of electri electricity and potentially are environmentally damaging the planet. Um, having said that, various studies give different answers. I saw one the other day that shows that over half of the energy involved in Bitcoin mining is using renewable energy, so it's not destroying the planet. But when Ethereum moved to proof of stake and the differences in a proof of stake, you have to put in money to back the fact that you can validate transactions. And I think the minimum amount is around, currently around 50,000 euros to be a, a stakeholder. But once you've done that, the, the transactions are validated by uh, your network of stakeholders and the energy usage therefore is not involved in mining but just involved in uh, proving from stakeholders that the transactions are valid and that reduced ethereum's energy usage by 99 percent overnight not to mention the speed of you know number of transactions per second as well i guess yeah and it's interesting because the tr transactional aspect has nothing to do with energy usage the energy usage is all about really mining the bitcoins um to add to the block yeah no, i mean 
I mean, in a proof of work, uh, you need to solve a puzzle. I mean, there's an algorithm that solves a puzzle, which takes approximately 10 minutes or, or a bit less, but, uh, you know, that goes with the hardware. It's, it's taking longer and longer as we get to the end of the projection of the number of Bitcoins mined. I mean, there's only 21 million Bitcoins that will ever be mined, and that limit is set for around the middle of the 2040s. Uh, so these days, it's, it takes... a a lot longer than it used to. I mean, you used to be able to mine a Bitcoin for the cost of um, you know, making a piece of toast, whereas these days it's uh, about the, the, the cost of running a house for a month. Well, Chris, for the non-technical people, what's the difference between cryptocurrencies and uh, government currencies? Well, it kind of says it for itself in what you just said, which is cryptocurrencies, you know, 90 8% of them are based on decentralized peer-to-peer -peer networking, uh, whereas central bank digital currencies, CBDCs, are all, they're all issued digitally by a government through their central banks into the network. And again, there's a debate in that space, which is do they issue them directly to citizens or to retail banks or to commercial banks? What's the role of banks in that process? And in most cases central bank digital currencies are being issued through the central bank directly to the commercial um, wholesale banks on the basis that they don't want to disrupt the banking system. Um, and the vision of Satoshi Nakamoto's paper, which is uh, cryptocurrencies and all based on this notion, is um, why should we have intermediaries involved in our, our payments and financial networks? So the vision is that you can actually... Uh, pay and transfer value in real time without fees peer-to-peer -peer, which is a great vision you know i actually fundamentally back the vision but the problem goes back to what i was saying which is if you don't have an intermediary if you don't have someone who can investigate when losses are made then there's a wild west so you need to have an intermediary primarily on the basis of a secure process that's got governmental oversight the governmental oversight could be the network of citizens or it could be um, you know, the, the government of your nation. Um, and and the, the real thing that's revolutionary here is that, and it reflects a, wide, a wider macro picture, is that the internet doesn't recognize Italy, Poland, Britain, America, or China. The internet is a global network of citizens. And a global network of citizens has created a global network of financial currencies. And at the end of the next decade, there will be some winners. Um, it's already emerging, Bitcoin, Ethereum, XRP, but it's not stable. It's emerging, it's developing. But at the end of the next decade, there will be a global currency. And I've said this for many years. I just don't know what the global currency will be. Hey, this episode is supported by Mimecast, the email security solution that every business needs. Are you relying solely on uh, M365 to protect your workplace? Well, that's not enough. Just one phishing email can bring your entire business to a screeching halt. Picture this, your transformers stop transforming and your circuits short circuit, <laughs> all because of one email. Don't let that happen to you. With Mimecast, you get a security solution that is specifically designed for email and workplace collaboration. It detects suspicious emails and diversifies your security stack so you can have peace of mind knowing that your business is fully protected. 
Setting up Mimecast is quick and easy. Just 5 minutes of your time can save your business from falling apart. And so, don't wait until it's too late. Get another layer of protection for your inbox today. Head to mimecast.com for a free trial. So definitely there are some potential advantages uh, using crypto. For example, the cost of transactions is pretty much you know, negligible with respect to what you're moving. Uh, I heard that uh, some people were moving millions for a, a buck or less. <laughs> um, a clear disadvantage, of course, is, as we said before, as we mentioned already, like the fact that, um, you know, when something goes wrong, uh, you lose, for example, your, your private keys or your wallet, it, it's over. Uh, well, now, if you, you know, lose your credit card, I'm, I'm simplifying here, but if someone clones your credit card and starts uh, buying on your behalf, uh, you can block the card, you can inform your bank and probably get a refund. Uh, this, you know, from a te- technical perspective, cannot happen uh, as as cryptocurrency is designed now, right? So I would call it as an advantage, uh, as a disadvantage. Do you foresee other potential benefits and 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 back, uh, you know, pros and cons of uh, cryptocurrencies and digital currencies in particular? Well, I think that's why I mentioned HiFi as in hybrid finance, and a good example of that is Coinbase. And Coinbase is the major cryptocurrency um, trading platform used by millions of people. But when you lift the hood, then underneath you see Coinbase has demanded that they are regulated and that they are a regulated exchange, a regulated entity. They have government backing and federal insurance uh, compensation schemes and so on and so on. So effectively, they become like a regular financial institution or financial intermediary. And I think that's the hard thing for some people to accept, which is that they want to have transactional trading without any government involvement. And in fact, what's interesting when you look at some countries like Nigeria, um, Venezuela uh, and others, is that uh, in economies that are relatively unstable, where there isn't a, a decent government in terms of government structure that's trusted, then people actively move and morph towards cryptocurrencies because they trust them more than they trust the government. So it's been very interesting because Nigeria, for example, last year launched the Inara, which is the electronic version of the fiat currency, the national currency, the Naira. Um, And they've tried very hard to incentivize people to use it, but people just don't trust it. So they use Bitcoin because they trust Bitcoin. Um, in fact, Nigerians uh, and Nigeria generally tends to be the leading economy committed to using cryptocurrencies and specifically Bitcoin, uh, far ahead of most other nations. And when you think about that, that, it goes back to the heart of the questions I'm asking. And it's all the themes of the book I'm currently writing, which is around the future of finance and technology and us, which is. Who do you trust more, centralized or decentralized entities, the network or the government? And that question is pretty fundamental when it comes to not just cryptocurrencies and central bank digital currencies, but about us. It's about, you know, if I trust the network of citizens more than I trust the government, what is the role of government? Absolutely. 
I guess what I want to ask is, how would you address from a practical perspective the, the issue of regulation and, and governance in the context of cryptocurrencies and, and emerging financial technologies? Because you know, the fact that uh, a population trusts uh, Bitcoin or, or blockchain more than their government is probably because their government is not trustworthy, right? Uh, which is not the case for all the other countries in the world. So uh, what I'm trying to say is like, what happens, you know, to the other countries? Like, how would you address regulation to, let's say, US or Italy or Belgium or UK? Well, I've got an old, an old joke, which is, you know, the derivation and history of the word politics is poly, which is Latin for many, and ticks, which is blood-sucking parasites. <laughs> so you've got this corrupted system in government, uh, which a lot of people hate. They don't, they don't know how to get around it or deal with it or change it. But the network of citizens is changing it. And I think we end up with this hybrid structure where there will still be government in most economies. It's very hard to imagine, you know, Europe without a European Commission or a European Parliament or Britain without a House of Parliament and a House of Lords, although many of us would wish that there wasn't that structure. And from a currency perspective, we can change it uh, through the network of citizens. And I think this is what is the interesting development over the next decade in that you can have a network of citizens who create a basket of currencies that they believe in and trade in. So it doesn't necessarily need to be Bitcoin or XRP or F or Cardano or whatever. It can be the G20 digital currency. And the G20 digital currency is tied to the euro, the British pound, the US dollar, the Chinese yuan, but also to Bitcoin and XRP and F. So you end up with this interesting play where the network of citizens can create their own global currency because when you've got a global network, it needs a global currency. It seems ridiculous to have you know, a restriction that if I'm buying something from um, you know, Britain in, uh, and I'm living in Poland, I have to pay so many import duties and taxes um, using a global coin, or as I call it, the glob. <laughs> you, you can start to see a way in which you can change the system and uh, it, not a, a, avoid taxes and, and avoid you know, the government, but to have something that's far more um, equitable and uh, a level playing field and where we equalize the system using the network. Right. Well, there are some examples of uh, so-called stable coins that are backed by uh, US dollars, for example, or like the DAI, uh, DAI. Uh, and 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 several others. Uh, so I guess that's kind of the the first exercise towards what you're uh, saying here. Like yeah, there's there's two thing, things you know. In, in its first, the world is going into a, the next decade where, if you believe what I read, um, we will we will be de-dollarizing. You know, the dollar is no longer the reserve currency of the world because America is no longer the global superpower. China and America. And maybe others are moving into that space. And so there's an equitable world. So do you want it backed as a stable coin by the US dollar or by the Chinese renminbi or Huan, as people call it for short? Um, but the other part of that is that Terra Luna, um, which collapsed last year, 
uh, just before FTX. And I think FTX was actually partly as a result of the Terra Luna collapse. But Terra Luna was meant to be a stable coin, and it wasn't. It was unstable. It was using algorithms that were related to each other and didn't work as they should. Um, and the result of that was people lost millions of dollars. Um, and right now, there's a lot of questions because people say things like FTX and Terra Luna are more like Ponzi schemes that the Bernie Madoffs of this world had created. And yet Bernie Madoff was jailed and died in jail. And yet the guys who have been running those schemes are still on, on, on the loose or on the run, depending on how you look at it. Um, although Sam Bankman fried, as I call him, people keep saying it's freed. And I go, we shouldn't free a Bankman who lied. So he's fried. Um, so it's kind of really interesting in that, um, you know, it, it's money at the bottom line of it is all about a belief and a trust. And when I put it in that context, no money actually exists. And you may say, but I've got euros in my pocket, Chris, or dollars in my pocket or whatever you've got physically you've got money and i'll say that's not money that's just pieces of paper that you believe is money um because the only reason you believe it's money is because you trust the fed or you trust the european central bank the bottom line is it's just made up it's just doesn't exist and so that's why we, we can create new currencies and if you believe in the new currencies more than the old currencies then the new currencies will take over makes perfect sense I mean, you know, money today is no longer back to, I don't know, the gold resources of the planet. So it's just numbers or, or you know, paper gets printed and by someone who we trust and then we give value to the bucks that we have in the pocket, I guess. Uh, Chris, we spoke about network of citizens and uh, I think I found a connection as you were speaking, <laughs> which is the metaverse. Am I wrong? No, I mean, the metaverse is going to be the next level of augmenting humanity um, in the same way as artificial intelligence. I have a line about artificial intelligence, which is automate the mundane and augment the human. And the metaverse is where the human will exist in an augmented state. And in some ways, it's very exciting. In some ways, it's very frightening. But when I look at history, I always go, well, we always thought technology and technological innovation and development was, was frightening and then when it arrived we went hey this is great <laughs> so it's kind of like if we can live our lives in another world then that'll be fantastic and we've tried this many times over the past 25 years my favorite example being second life which was right. if you don't like your real life get another life <laughs> so <laughs> you go and live in a cartoon world with avatars and you connect with each other. And I played a lot in Second Life. And now we have Decentraland <laughs> and Meta and all these other developments taking place. But in Second Life, there was a big lesson that was learned, although a lot of people didn't learn this lesson. And the lesson is that if you're running money in a virtual world, then you need to have a connection to the real world to guarantee you don't lose your money. And so in Second Life, they had this bank that was called Ginkgo Bank, and it became the most popular bank in the virtual world. And to, to get Linden Labs dollars, and Linden Labs ran and do run Second Life, uh, you would have to invest a real dollar to get 27 virtual dollars back. And then you could spend them on 
um, you know, branded clothing, you could buy houses with them, etc., etc. And then one day, Ginkgo Bank disappeared. And what it actually turned out was that Ginkgo Bank was being run by a young student who lived in São Paulo, Brazil. And he had one and a half million real US dollars deposited in Ginkgo Bank and decided to buy himself a Ferrari and an apartment <laughs> and just press delete. So <laughs> the result of that was that people in Second Life went crazy saying, we want our money back. And they demonstrated uh, virtually for three months outside the Linden Labs virtual headquarters saying, give us our money back. And then the labs initially said, but we're not here to regulate the system. And after three months of being harassed by millions of Second Life virtual users, they <laughs> created a law, which is to be a bank in the virtual world, you have to be a bank in the real world. That's that's exactly what I, yeah. what I was thinking. Like, uh, Ginkgo was in fact a bank. No, it's, it's, it's just some guy pretending to be a bank. Yeah. And that goes back to what I'm saying, that um, I'm very happy to have cryptocurrencies and decentralization for transactions but when it comes to storing value and you know making savings and keeping my money for a longer term basis i would much rather have someone who's got a license you are drowning in the ocean of different apps and services that are out there on the market literally so many of them could simply be replaced with the notes app that's pre-installed on your mac for free yet your credit cards are sometimes charged for some services that you found good but how do you know which ones are worth trying without draining your wallet on subscriptions that you forgot to cancel in the future? The answer is with Setapp. Setapp is a platform that combines more than 230 powerful macOS and iOS apps and tools under one $9.99 subscription. Their selection of apps is mostly helpful for people who use their Macs as an actual working tool, covering complete use cases like coding, designing, project, and time management, and so on. Once you subscribe, you get full access to paid features of the apps, as well as to new apps that are constantly being added. So you always be sure you're not missing out on any cool apps and services that actually help you do your work more efficiently for just a fraction of the price. Check out Setup today by trying out for seven days for free. Setup powers you up. And there is another choice, which is you put it into a hard wallet, which means you store it cold off the network yourself. Um, but that choice, I personally wouldn't take because I'm very messy. And so by the time I got back to getting to say, oh, I need to open my cold wallet, I'd have forgotten all the passwords or you know, access details and that yeah, no. all the money would be lost. Exactly. It's, everything is on, on you, like your responsibility. Of course, you have 100% control, but also 100% of the risks in case you, you know, forgot or missed yeah, that, or, or that, lost the, the password. When you, when, when you think about that, I wrote something recently saying, I don't want to be empowered. You know, right. it, 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 this does empower you, but if you're empowered, it means it's all on you. And if something goes wrong, it's all on you. you, you you're stuffed. Yep. So I'd much rather say I delegate these things to the intermediary to look after these things on my behalf, knowing that, if they if they mess it up, it's on them. It's not on me. Yes, but with block, I mean, with with crypto, we still have to find a way to 
let's say, get any insurance because if they go busted or if they make a mistake or if there was a bug in their algorithm, uh, someone has to refund, which is what happens with re- regular banks. True, today. but then you know you have the insurance schemes behind the banks that guarantee one hundred thousand euros or two hundred fifty thousand US dollars to say you know that's the insurance you have. Um, if you've got a million cryptocurrency um, at your access, and by a million I mean a million US dollars, um, do you put it in a cold wallet so it's on you? Or do you say it's trusted because it's on the blockchain so you can find that transaction and those movements? Um, in my case, I, I put it in a Coinbase vault, which doesn't mean that it's guaranteed, but I feel more comfortable putting my crypto into a, a, a cold wallet on the network that's owned by a licensed exchange rather than it, it being on me. So it's your choice. Absolutely. No, it makes sense. Chris, there is another uh, actor that we we kind of forgot, but we didn't, which is artificial intelligence. Um, uh, you know, we have we have heard the the magnificent magnificent progress that AI is doing in the last few years, <clears throat> and there is this big spikes on news. I mentioned ChatGPT just to mention the the most recent one we have covered uh, m- multiple times on this show. Um, do you have any concern regarding? let's say, the integration of artificial intelligence in the financial sector uh, and, of course, its impact on humanity? No, I think it's a great um, opportunity. Um, Going back to what I was saying earlier about technological progress and innovation often frightens us, particularly because of the movies, because they paint the world of sentient intelligence as ex machina or the Terminator. And, um, you know, Right now, what we're seeing with ChatGPT, which stands for Generative Pre-Training Transformer, which sounds really weird. You know, is, is it the Transformers, the cars that can turn into and trucks that can turn into robots? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but you know, I, 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 we I saw an experiment the other day with Bank GPT, and the idea of Bank GPT is it takes all of your lifestyle knowledge and what you're doing, when you're doing it, where you're doing it, particularly with financial transactions, and enriches it with a huge amount of information so that you can see a lot more around whether you're living a healthy or a negative financial lifestyle. So it's augmenting your lifestyle digitally. And this is the bottom line for me, which is you know, it's it's automating the mundane so you don't have to think about bank statements or spreadsheets and augmenting the human so you focus on well, what am, should I be doing to improve my life? And this can give me the answers about that. So a good example in business, and I've seen three or four, but my favorite one was actually from about five years ago when JP Morgan Chase um, found that what they integrated artificial intelligence into their commercial contract process so that the AI engine could check all the wordings on their contracts and when they trained it enough, it did it so well, they could fire 1,500 lawyers. Except they didn't fire them. They just got the lawyers doing something better rather than just reading words in contracts. Uh, UBS did the same when they integrated artificial intelligence into their wealth management relationship processes so that when customers sent emails saying, I want to de-risk my portfolio and have more in you know, government bonds than in stocks, for example, for example, 
Uh, that would typically take 45 minutes to an hour for a wealth manager to administer, but the AI engine could do that in seconds with no human hand involved. So the wealth manager can spend more time on the relationships and wealth than dealing with administration. So I think that's where the real bang for the buck sits. Yeah. Having said that, there is a question, because I, I, I did for some, I mean, some years believe that AI could never be more creative than a human. And yet what we're seeing today with AI art and AI poetry and AI stories is that it can. But the only reason it can do that is because a human had to provide the stories and the poetry and the art in the first place. And that's all AI does. It takes what humans have done and you know, curates and integrates and aggregates it into new forms of what it can produce. Right. Without that or- original input, it, would, it couldn't do anything. So we have to be sort of balanced and just say the only reason why we have artificial intelligence and GPT is to help us live better lives. And if it starts to impact our lives in a negative way, then people will start to wonder what to do about it. And that's where we are right now. Um, But exactly those questions were the same questions asked at the creation of the telephone, the train, the automobile, you name it. They didn't know that the automobile would result in everyone becoming uh, people who live in cities connected by motorways. But that's what we have today. When we just had a horse and carriage, you know, why would we still have a horse and carriage? Well, there's no reason we've got automobiles. What if the automobiles can fly? And they can these days. You know, so do we get rid of all the motorways and all the uh, all, all of the cities? You know, we can work from home. Do we need to work in offices? You know, all of these are questions that humanity is asking of, of themselves every time there's technological progress. And AI is just another part of technological progress. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. It's uh uh, I, I look. I look at it as a the regular evolution of humanity in a way. You know, there are, you know, because I've heard and, and read about a lot of people, even very reputable ones, who say who claim that AI is gonna exterminate humanity and uh, you know all the the Terminator uh, uh, end of the world, uh, which is kind of you know nonsense to me. Uh, I look at it as you just mentioned as an evolution of uh, you know it's not that people will lose jobs but people will do other things that require human care and attention. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean the bigger thing that worries worries me, and I spent a long time on this for the production of my last book, which was uh, it's called Digital for Good. Um, and basically, how can we use technology and finance to make the world a better place? Is the underlying theme. And what worries me the most is not any climate emergency, although that does worry me, but you can worry about all all sorts of things, both existential and personal. But what I really get upset about is the loss of biodiversity, because I'm a a huge animal advocate lover, Um, and and always have been, because my brother, when I was growing up, was a big advocate against fox hunting, for example, and... He was also a member of the World Wildlife Fund, which I have been for most of my life ever since. And we've lost 60% of our animal populations in the last 50 years due to human activity in deforestation and you know, 
basically taking away the environments and the habitats of our fellow animal populations. So that's what really gets me. And I think if, if we look at that question, that's far more important than it will AI destroy humanity. It won't, but humanity might destroy the rest of the world. And that's the, the, the real concern. I cannot agree more. Chris, when's the book coming out? Uh, well, the next one I'm working on during the summer, and it will be out in uh, probably spring 2024. Nice. Are you going to use ChatGPT? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that'll be the 23rd book, if you include the five children's books. <laughs> That's amazing. Can you reveal the title, or is it still, like, we read something on, on Twitter a while ago, there was some proposal about the title. Yeah, I mean, we ended up that my publisher liked the future of technology, finance, and us as their preferred title. I'm not so sure yet. I, I think that's a subtitle, but I'm still working on it. All right, cool. Let, let's, keep it, uh, let's keep it as a surprise then. <laughs> no spoiler. All right. Thank you so much, Chris, for sharing your valuable insights on these fascinating topics. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.